You are listening to The Rooted Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered youth ministry. This session was recorded at the Rooted 2016 conference in San Diego, California. Registration is now open for our 2017 conference in Dallas. Our annual conference features great preaching, engaging biblical teaching, practical workshops, and sincere worship. It is great for anyone involved in ministry to youth, including parents. To learn more, visit www.rootedministry.com. Good morning to the remnant. You guys have stuck it out. Um, like Michael Horton, I always got to lower this thing. I'm the shortest person on the steering committee, and there are two other girls, so... <laughs> really have to be secure in Christ to serve with Rooted. <laughs> my identity is not in the height of my stature, but the height of God's love for me, amen? <laughs> uh, when I first... Um, when I first got connected with Rooted, I think it was back in I don't know, 2012, I guess, um, I messaged the, the Rooted Facebook page, and then like three months later, I get a response, because um, Cameron was everything back then. He was the conference planner, social media, everything. Uh, and I asked him, I was like, hey, like, are you ever going to do something out in California? And he said, oh, we never really thought about that. And now... Four years later, it's in California, and I really pushed for that. I said, you got to come to the West Coast. There's nothing out here. Uh, we, we really need good gospel-centered youth ministry training out here. And so uh, finally last year, he said, we're going to do it in San Diego. I didn't know that meant that I would have to work my butt off while I was here in San Diego. And on top of that, preach, uh, not only preach, but preach last. So all the pressure is on me um, to close it out, but... But honestly, there, there's no better text to close us out this morning. And as I've been preparing and working through our text this morning, I've really felt like what an amazing way to send us out from this conference. Uh, the text that I've been assigned is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you could turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through dishonor and honor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a what an amazing past couple days we've had together to rejoice in our identity in Christ, to learn from your word, God, to stand under great preaching, but more than anything, to stand upon a great Savior. 
Father, would you guide us this morning in this final session? God, guide me. Help me to just weed out everything that is just silly and my own thoughts and just rely upon your word to speak. Would your spirit work through me as your instrument, as your messenger? Would your spirit work in all of our hearts to shape us and transform us? God, that we would leave here with the charge of what it means to be commendable ministers. In your son's name, amen. When I first started in youth ministry, it was back in 2009. I was fresh out of college, uh, and I was fresh into seminary, and I remember starting seminary and thinking, I'm going to change the world. Went into my first seminary experience, said, I'm, I can't wait to get my hands dirty, to, to, to start learning languages, get in the Bible, to start learning ministry, and just thinking, God's going to do amazing things through me, through this ministry. I started my first ministry position at a really small first-generation Korean church. And I walked in for the interview, and there were 12 kids sitting there. And I remember thinking, it's okay. Jesus had 12. I will change the world with 12. Uh, And that was kind of my my desire. I thought, you know, God's going to do great things for me. I have a great heart and desire and love to serve him. So there's much that can be done here, and I want to serve God. He'll use me, so let's get busy. As I continued on in youth ministry, I realized my dreams were maybe a bit too lofty, uh, a bit too idealistic. And you know, so often ministry doesn't go the way it's planned. And I think sometimes when it comes to ministers, especially to youth, we're tempted to have this view of ministry and to think that's what a really good ministry is, or that's what a really good minister does or is. We want to be like the great heroes of the faith. We want to have great ministries that are huge and thriving and growing, and that's what we think. That's a commendable ministry. That's the picture of the perfect minister, the perfect pastor, the perfect servant, the perfect church. And, you know, for as much as I love conferences, I'm a conference junkie. I tell that to my youth staff. We always go to TGC, T4G, wherever we can go. But, But sometimes I actually think conferences can perpetuate this. Because as we come to conferences, who do we put on stage? It's the people with the biggest churches, the fastest growing ministries, the best preachers, the best leaders, the best pastors. And we're tempted to think, well, if I really want to have a good ministry, I got to be like them. If I want to be a good pastor with a good church, I need to do what they're doing, look like them, and be like them. And when I would go to these conferences, I would always come home and be a little bit depressed. You can ask my wife. She'd always say that. I hate it when you go to conferences, you come back depressed. Because I would always just think, I can never be like them. I'm never going to have a church as big as they are. I'm at my church with 12 kids, and you're telling me i got to have 12,000 to be like him, to be great, to be good. And I would just simply conclude, I'm not a good pastor. I don't have a good church. I'm struggling. I'm not gifted. I'm not good. I'm not platformed, so, so what am I doing here? But, you know, that's one of the things I like about Rooted and why I joined on. Like Pastor Richard Kim said yesterday, you know, when, when Cameron said I was going to speak and I was going to close out, my first reaction was, really? Like, you want me to be the last person that they hear at this conference? Be, because I'm not the best pastor. I'm not the best speaker. I'm a nobody. I'm not going to draw any crowds. No one's going to come because of Clark Phobes is on the speaker list of Rooted. And you know, uh, yet praise God for that because I think this is the way of the cross. I think this is the way we become commendable ministers with commendable ministries. And I want to ask that question this morning. What really does make us commendable ministers with a commendable ministry? 
Is it our large churches, our successful ministries, people growing, people being saved, our good gifts, our preaching, our speaking, our teaching, our shepherding, our leading? Or is it something else? And so this morning, I just want to answer this question. What makes our ministry and us as ministers commendable in God? So first, we're going to look at the commendable ministry and then commendable ministers. First, the commendable ministry. What makes our ministry commendable? Sometimes we think a commendable ministry, a ministry worthy of praise, recognition, worthy of someone saying, hey, go to that church, is a ministry that is thriving and growing and big. It's a ministry where a lot of good things are happening. And yet one of the things that Paul says here, the very first thing is he reminds the Corinthians and even reminds himself and his companions that a commendable ministry is commendable first because it's God's ministry. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you. First thing he says, working together with him. He's referring back to everything he said in chapter 5 when he mentions that it's not actually our ministry. We're working together with God, and God has already done 99% of the work. God is the one who made reconciliation available in Jesus, making him to be sin who knew no sin. God did that, not us. God is the one who made Paul and his companions and us as his servants into new creations. God does that, not us. God's the one who gives us the ministry of reconciliation to call others to also be reconciled. So what's our side of the work? Our side of the work is simply what Paul says in that second half, we appeal to you. That's it. We're simply messengers that appeal, or Paul says earlier, we implore you be reconciled to God. That's all we are. We're simply messengers. And it's not our ministry. See, I think one of the first corrections we need to make is to remember it's actually not our ministry. If you look at chapter 6, verse 3, the ESV actually translate it, translates it as it's being Paul's and his companion's ministry. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So you automatically think, okay, Paul's talking about his ministry as an apostle. If you actually look at the original Greek, though, there is no possessive pronoun. There is actually a definite article. Paul says, We labor to put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with the ministry. I think that's intentional because Paul is not talking about him as an apostle. He's talking about the ministry of reconciliation. He wants to ensure that nothing gets in the way, not of him and his church and his ministry, but God's doing, God's working of reconciliation in the hearts of the Corinthians. Paul is more concerned about the universal ministry of the gospel than his own reputation, position, or influence. That's the basis of why he can go on to say we endure all these things because he knows it's not about him and his ministry. His worth is as a servant of God, not what type of servant, not how many people he gets to serve. Not how much influence he has as a servant. Not his position as a servant. Not even his platform as a servant. It's simply that he serves with the living God with this powerful ministry of reconciliation. And that leads Paul to this point where he cares not about what others think about him. He only only cares about how that might affect the ministry of the gospel for them. Not himself, but for the gospel. You know, so often... I I care more about my ministry, I think, than the ministry of the gospel as a whole. If I have to be honest with myself, I think a lot of times I spend more time thinking about how to win people to me than to win people to Christ. 
How, how can I get people to have good rapport with me, to like me, to, to make sure that, that I'm on their good side, and then I'll share Christ with them? I, I want people to be changed by the gospel, but you know, I, I want it to be through me. I want them to say, man, Clark, what a great sermon. That really impacted me. So I get to be the one who says, I changed them. I had a part in it. I want that recognition. You know, serving in youth ministry, I think we face this a lot. Because if you think about our youth kids, so often we're, we're plowing soil with them. I, I call it, we, we plow concrete as youth ministers, trying to take a pickaxe and go at the concrete. They'll go off to college, and they'll come back during our, our, our winter breaks, summer breaks, and I'll ask them, you know, how's college going? And they'll say, oh, it's great. I'm growing so much. I'm learning about Calvinism and predestination and election, and I love my church and college. I love my college pastor. You know, my first thought is, I've been talking about that the whole time in youth group. <laughs> I've been talking about all those things. Where, where were you back then? See, my first response is, why can't you see that I had a part in that? There's this sinful, self-glorifying nature we have where we want recognition. And Paul corrects that because he reminds us this ministry is commendable not because of our churches and what they look like, but because of what God has done through him and for him. And for this reason, he takes great pains to guard not himself, but the ministry. This is why Paul can say in verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no faults may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Paul's able to say, we do whatever it takes to make the gospel known without hindrance because it's not about us. It's about the ministry of God. And this leads Paul to get into his whole commendations, his credentials, so to speak, of himself as a servant. So now we, we get to the commendable minister. What does Paul actually base his commendability on? What does he use to credential himself, so to speak, as a minister worthy of recognition? There's, there's three things here, and they're all quite interesting and actually quite counter to what we see in churches today. The first one is Paul commends himself as a minister of suffering. He commends himself as a minister by his sufferings. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. You know, it's interesting that the first thing Paul would mention that makes him commendable is his sufferings. Now, we have to remember the context here. Paul's in Corinth, and the Corinthians, they were reviling Paul for his ministry. You had the Jewish opponents on the one hand saying, they have this theology of suffering, and they're saying, if Paul really is chosen by God, if God is behind Paul, why is he facing so much opposition? Why is he being beaten? Why is he being stoned nearly to death? Uh, the, the Jewish opponents would have thought if, if, if he was suffering, God's hand of judgment was upon him. And then on the other hand, you have the Corinthians in the Gentile world who saw great people and great philosophers as people not who suffered, but who people loved. The, the, the philosophers were people who walked around. People loved them. They, they cherished their teachings. They gave them money. They weren't poor. They didn't live in sleepless nights. They were famous, exalted, rich, comfortable. And, and yet Paul, he doesn't mention anything that would be commendable in their eyes. He mentions his sufferings. 
He mentions it in three categories. First, he mentions his emotional suffering. I think that's the first and foremost he mentions. That this word affliction could be translated as opposition, opposition to him and to the gospel. Hardships that could also be translated as distress. And last, calamities. I, th- I think a better word for that is actually anguish. Paul is mentioning he's in anguish emotionally, suffering emotionally for the sake of the gospel. He also faced physical sufferings, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. even faced personal sacrifice and discomfort. When he mentions labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, these were probably things he faced because he spent all his time working to support himself, not taking any money to be confused with the philosophers of their day in the Gentile worlds, to say that this message is for free and it's by grace and grace alone. We still have to ask the question, though, why? Why mention these things first? Why is he credentialed by his suffering? You know, if there's anyone who could be commended for his greatness, for his skills, for his gifts, it should be Paul. If Paul were to be with us today, he would actually be the main guy speaking on the stage of TGC or here at Rooted. No, we're small. He would be the main guy. He's the main guy who planted churches. He planted more churches than anyone in his time. He could have said, I'm commendable because look at how many people came to faith through my witness and my preaching and my teaching. He could have said, look at how much I've written, how much I know, all my theology. And yet he mentions sufferings, the very things his opponents were mocking him for, saying, you can't be chosen by God, you're suffering. How are you in any way a good minister of the gospel if you're facing opposition? There must be something wrong with you and with your ministry. Paul commended himself for the very things the world around him deemed as weak, as failures, and not successful. We are commendable ministers not by our successes, but actually by our failures. You know what makes us commendable? It's not how gifted or good we are in ministry. It's actually how we suffer, how we suffer in ministry. It's our weaknesses that we can commend before people because in our suffering, in our failures, in our weakness, we point to the worth of Christ. See, when you suffer for something, you show just how good it is, how much it's worth suffering for. And when Paul says, I've suffered, I've tirelessly labored, I've been in anguish for the gospel, he's saying this is worth suffering for. It it points to the worth of Christ. But suffering, it also points to the sufficiency of Christ. It it points to the fact that Paul is not ultimate. Sometimes I'm tempted to think Paul was like a second Jesus. He's perfect. He's our other Jesus model. And for as good as Paul was, He still failed. He was still weak. He was still unsuccessful. And he commends himself by that to point to only the sufficiency of Christ. Suffering shows that we are finite. And it reminds both us and our youth ministries that we are not the saviors of our youth ministries. Suffering, weakness, failures, it reminds us that we can't be the saviors of our students. They need Jesus you know, I, I struggle with the idol of perfection. I'm a perfectionist. Uh, I, everything has to be perfect. I, I work way too long on my sermons. Mike McGeary told me to go to bed last night before I finished. I was like, no, I got to stay up and finish this and make it perfect. And, and so often I'm tempted to think, if I can be the perfect youth pastor, then I can save some of these kids. But you know, if, if I really were the perfect youth pastor, 
my students would have no need for the perfect Savior. That's a fact. They wouldn't see the sufficiency of Christ. You know, when it comes to youth ministry, I think a lot of us have suffered. A lot of us have faced this, this anguish. We may not face the beatings and imprisonments that Paul did, but we face the emotional anguish. We often feel the stress of ministry, the demands and the criticism people place on us, the emotional distress of chasing after wayward students. We feel the anguish that comes with watching students fall away from us and our churches and even God and the faith. And we feel that. You know, I mentioned my, my first ministry position. It was at a first-generation Korean church, small church, 12 kids. And, and every time I would talk to my friends, they would say, you know, how's ministry going? I'd say, yeah, it's, it's okay. They'd say, oh, you know, how many kids do you have? I'd say, I have 12. They'd be like, oh, man, that's so cute. It's like, like Jesus and his 12 disciples, you and your 12 little disciples. I'd say, yeah, you know, it would be if I had at least 11 disciples, but then I have a Judas. I was, that would go through my mind. And, but then I would think, you know, I don't really have 11 disciples and one Judas. It's more like, feels more like I have one disciple and 11 Judases who are all sitting there who are about ready to hand me over to be betrayed and crucified. <laughs> the, the, there's one, one point where this was most illustrated. This was the lowest point of suffering during those three years at that church. I was setting up for my Friday night fellowship. Uh, Asian churches, we do it on Friday nights because all the kids got to study throughout the week. So parents say, you got to do it on Friday. So we're, we're setting up for a Friday night youth group. And remember, I, I'm a single, you know, only pastor, no staff with me, only guy. So I'm the worship leader, the preacher, and the small group leader. And I play in the games. We didn't do games back then, though. We're not a games place here. I don't know why I said that. Talk to Mike about that. I was setting up for worship, getting the PowerPoint ready, setting up on my guitar. We start at 8 p.m. It's about 8.15, and no one's there. Seats are empty. Finally, one girl walks in at 8.20, and she's like, oh, where is everybody? I said, um, you're it? And she said, oh, okay. Uh, are we still going to do worship? I kind of looked at her. I was like, uh, I guess, <laughs> if, if you want. But, you know, if you want, if you want us to do worship, I, I'm up here playing, so you got to do PowerPoint for yourself. <laughs> And she was like, all right, I'm down, let's do this. So she went to the back, and her on the computer, and me on the guitar, we sat in that room with empty chairs, and we worshipped for about 15 minutes. And after that, I said, you know what? This is pathetic, let's just end. You can go home. I went back to my office that night, and I just wept for the remainder of the night. Lowest point in my ministry lowest points. I remember thinking in that moment, God, why? Why even send one person? I feel like it's even more pathetic. Just send no one. Why? And I was reminded in that weakness, in that suffering, in that failure, that moment of failure, it pointed me to the sufficiency of Christ that I can't do it all. Suffering, weakness, failures, it causes us to run to the cross because Jesus is the only one strong enough to sustain us and to sustain our students. We stand upon him, not us, as ministers of the gospel. We are commendable by our suffering. Second, Paul mentions we're commendable servants by the fruit of the Spirit and the power of God. Fruit of the Spirit and the power of God. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 6. 
Paul says we commend ourselves in every way by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. I think it's interesting that Paul mentions here, he mentions fruits of the Spirit. He mentions purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. He, he mentions that he's commendable for the way God has formed Christ's likeness in his life. Now, my first reaction to this is honestly to look at that and, and despair. Paul said, I put no obstacle in anyone's way, and I was commendable for these fruits of the Spirit in my life. And my first reaction is, I, I, can I be like Paul? Can I really say I was above reproach without fault in purity, knowledge, patience, kindness? There's so many times where if students were to look at the inner thoughts of my heart and my mind as I'm preparing for youth ministry, for our Friday nights, that they would look at that and say, why is he our youth pastor? If they were to look at my heart and see the lack of patience I have in my marriage with my wife or even in front of the kids, if they were to look into my heart and see the purity and the lack thereof and how lust continually knocks on the door, they would say, how is he a commendable minister? You know, my, my first gut reaction as I read this is actually to, to shrink back in fear and, and say, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of being commendable as Paul was. He was pure. He had knowledge. He was patient. He was kind. I'm, I'm none of those. One of the things I think is, is helpful to remember, Paul's not saying that we are commendable ministers in every way. He's not saying that no one would find any fault with us his point is that no one would find any fault with the ministry. What ministry? The ministry of reconciliation. I think what that means is when Paul says he commends himself for the fruit of the Spirit, it's not that he's perfect. See, character doesn't mean perfection. When Paul says, I have the fruit of the Spirit, he's not saying they're perfected in him. He's saying it's a process where he's being reconciled to God. He's exhibiting character and the fruit of the Spirit that's in line with the ministry of reconciliation, of how we are constantly in need of being reconciled to God in Christ, of how we're not called to be perfect, but when we fail to run to Christ for continued reconciliation. I'm sure Paul, when, when he failed in sin, he didn't say, oh, didn't meet my quota as a commendable minister. No, no, he ran to God and was reconciled to God. He repented. He came to Christ and trusted in Him. Even think about this whole letter. This is a reconciliation letter to the church at Corinth. That means there was conflict. There was discord in his relationship with the church at Corinth. And Paul realized he needed to live in line, not with perfection, but with the gospel calls us to, to being reconciled to God and to one another. So remember first, character does not mean perfection. When we say we're commendable by the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we're not saying we have to be perfect. What I think Paul is saying, though, is that he realized character in his life as a minister was a more powerful and profound proclamation of the gospel than his gifts and skills and abilities. And so often we overshadow this in the American church. We look more at competence than we do character. We think, wow, he's a great preacher. He must be a great pastor. Or, or man, he's a great leader. He must be a great pastor. How often do we look at someone and say, wow, look at his love for Jesus. That's a great pastor. That's a great minister to youth. L look at their humility before God. That's a minister commendable before God. You know, the temptation for me is actually to spend more time doing for Jesus than being with Jesus. 
because I think I'm commendable, I'm justified by my productivity, by the fruit of my hands, not the fruit of the Spirit. I think we can even turn knowledge. Paul mentions knowledge here. Knowledge is a good thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a means of knowing God, being shaped and transformed. And yet we can even turn knowledge of God into a skill to be mastered. Not God mastering us through knowledge of Him. I think we can sometimes turn knowledge, even knowledge of theology and methods and even of God, into a means of exalting ourselves. You know, there's so many times where I'm actually more tempted to, to read the next book that just came out through my WTS Books newsletter in my email than to spend time with Jesus in the Word. There's a temptation for me where I want to read as much as I can so I can have this badge of honor when I hear a book mentioned and say, oh yeah, I read that. I read that. I'm commendable because I know what you're talking about. Rather than actually saying, you know, I might not know what that is, I may not know that theology. I may not know how to do that. I may not know that book, but, but, but I know Jesus. I know Christ, and I know I'm known by him. Ed Stetzer, he says, we can get so caught up in the work of the Lord that we forget the Lord of the work. We're commendable ministers, not for our expertise, not even for our extravagant knowledge. We're commendable for being people who commune with Jesus and through that allow him to work the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You know, I think what brings Paul to this point, how he's able to say this is because he's free to not emphasize his gifts and abilities because he recognizes he's commendable not by his power, but by the power of God in his ministry. He's not the one that has power to transform and change his ministries. God is the only one that is granted that power. If you look again at chapter 6, verse 6. We commend ourselves by the Holy Spirit, about halfway through, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. He, he trusted it was the Holy Spirit, the genuine love. I don't think Paul's saying my genuine love for the Corinthians. I think he's mentioning the genuine love of Christ. When he says words of truth, that, that's another phrase to talk about the gospel word of truth, the power of God. And he mentions even the weapons of right and the left, which we'll get to in a moment. But what he's saying, I think, is that the power rests only with God to change, to transform, to bring people into reconciliation. I, I think I've come to find that most of our discouragement in ministry, it's actually because we're focusing on the wrong things. We're focusing on something we can't control. We get discouraged in ministry because we think we can bear fruit. You, you just do the right methods, Set up the right amount of uh, prayer time and then worship time, do three songs, that's a magic number, 30 minutes of preaching, or, you know, if you're Cameron Cole, 15 minutes of preaching at his church, apparently. <laughs> or, and then small groups for an hour. You, you do the right formula and the methods, and eventually you'll bear fruit. That, that's how we think. We think A plus B equals C. It's a, it's a formula. It's a method. But remember, if, if God is sovereign, he has power to save. He's the one who gave us the ministry, who saved us in Christ, and it was only his working in the Spirit. We're simply the messengers. We have no power to save. It's not up to us. Let's not give ourselves that much credit. Let's remember that the power rests with God and God alone. I mean, who, who are we to think that we're so important that it's our giftings that actually save someone? You know, if Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in sins, 
and God raised us up in Christ, it's only God that can bring a dead heart to life. There's nothing in our power that can do that. Sometimes I'm tempted to think, I just wish I was a better preacher. Then my kids would listen to me. I wish I was more entertaining or, or, you know, I wish I had a, a more outgoing personality. Then they would start coming. And, you know, I think there's even a way where we can approach gospel-centered youth ministry, be word-centered in our content of preaching, and yet still be man-centered in the delivery of our preaching. I can't tell you how many times I'm, I'm, I'm stuck with this tension of thinking, you know, I, I want to craft my sermon well. I want the right illustrations. Or I'm planning a sermon, I have an outline, and I think, okay, now what's a really good illustration to, to hit it home to them? And to put the emphasis so much on my illustrations, my delivery, that, that I'm able to drive home the word of truth into their hearts, even with good content of the gospel, can be a way where we are doing man-centered ministry, entertainment-driven ministry, you know, as if the word needs any help. God says the word will go forth, it will not return empty-handed. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't be excellent. I, I believe we should be excellent preachers, excellent pastors. We should, uh, there is a place for illustration. There's a place for fun and games. Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, like an excellent builder, I laid the foundation of Christ. Paul recognized excellence in ministry. No one was more excellent than Paul when it came to sharing the gospel, planting churches, discipling other people, and yet he realized that the foundation of all of this was not his excellence, but the power of the Spirit working in those whom he was ministering to. It's not up to, up, up to us to save. And you know, I think that gives us great freedom. When we remember the power rests not with us but with God, there's freedom there. Now, on the one hand, it kind of sucks to think there's nothing I can do to save my kids. kind of sucks. I, I, I wish I could say I could help them. I wish I could say that my effort will save them ultimately at the end of the day. And sometimes it's a crushing reality to think that I'm powerless. But the weight of knowing there's nothing I can do is better than the weight of knowing it's all up to me. How much more crushing would it be to think I'm the one that has to win them to Christ? It's up to me, and if I fail, they're going to hell. We don't have to carry the burden of salvation. We do have to be faithful messengers. We have to implore and appeal and be excellent. But at the end of it all, it's up to God to bear the fruit, not us. I mean, just think about the way God saved us. God used the human agent. He, he brought the gospel to us, whether through our parents or someone outside. They preached to us. They brought us into a church service. We heard the gospel. But at the end of the day, it was God who worked his spirit in us to soften our hearts and open our eyes to the gospel. And this gives Paul great assurance. Because our trust, trust rests in the power of God, we can be confident that the battle will be won. If you look again at verse 7, he says, We commend ourselves by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left hand. What's he talking about there? Weapons of righteousness for the right and left. Some people will say this is the sword of the, uh, of the word and the shield of the spirit. Uh, some people say that he's talking about the righteousness God has given him is now a weapon, both defensive and offensive. W whatever he's saying here, we know he's talking about going into battle, going into war. And I think when he says we're equipped with the weapons of righteousness, he's remembering that the battle has already been won because of the righteousness of Christ. 
And that gave him courage and confidence to minister in a way where he's not defeated. And even though he may face defeated moments in ministry, if Jesus rose victorious in his heart and in the hearts of those around him, Jesus will ultimately reign victorious. And that's something I think we need to remember and believe. Because so many times we're ministering to these students year after year. Same students with hard hearts who, who don't care about the gospel and we may even be tempted to think they're beyond God's saving. Nothing will save them. We have to remember, if God is powerful, he can save. The power rests with him, not with us. And the victory is certain. Last, Paul says he's commendable as a servant by his status in Christ, not his status in the world. He's commendable because of how Christ sees him, not how the world sees him. Verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. He gives a series of, of dual phrases, two adjectives, two words, as something yet not something, or blank and blank. Now, how do you make sense of this? When I first read this, I was wrestling through this. I was like, Paul, what are you saying? What do you mean by this? It took me a long time to wrestle with it, but I think we can only make sense of Paul's words here when we kind of put one on the one hand that this is the way the world saw Paul and his companions as ministers, and yet he trusted this is how Jesus sees us as ministers. He held on to the way Christ saw him so that the way the world saw him didn't discourage and put him down. He had a perspective of his status and his worth in Christ. He was thought to be an imposter by the Jews. You're an imposter. You, you don't really believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That, that's a false account. And yet he says he knows he's a truthful apostle, constantly defending that fact, but knowing that Jesus really did show up to him. He was unknown in the Greco-Roman world. You, you go outside of the churches of Paul, probably no one knew who he was. We think of Paul as this great giant, and yet if you see Paul before the, uh, Caesarea, before Caesar in Acts chapters 21 to 27, they don't know who he is. He's unknown. He's a nobody. I think sometimes we work and we labor. I, I can be honest. I, I serve and I labor and I minister because I want to be known. I want to be a somebody. I chose the wrong profession to be in ministry if I want to be a somebody, but, but sometimes we can think I want to labor to be known. I want my name to be out there. I want people to know who I am. And yet Paul realized it doesn't matter who knows me. All that matters is that Jesus knows me. God knows me in Christ. Paul, Paul says he was dying, yet alive, punished, but not killed. What does he mean by that? You know, when we, we read that, we may think, uh, Paul, you're saying, you know, you're still alive. That's why you're commendable. Good job, Paul. You didn't die today. So we're all commendable because we're still alive. We're still here. But remember, this was Paul who said, I account my life as nothing, if only I may serve the course. He's the one who said, for me, it's better to die and be with Christ. I, I don't think Paul was actually saying, I want to live. I think he was saying, I think, I think he's bringing up here, he's saying that, he knows he's no longer under the punishment of God. He lives because Christ lives in him. He could rejoice knowing whatever suffering came, 
it wasn't God's punishment upon him. It was God's discipline, sanctifying him and making him more like Christ. He mentions he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He mentions he had nothing, yet he knew his riches in Christ. See, we can cling to our status in Christ whether or not things go good or bad in ministry. Whether or not. There's going to be moments where we're honored in ministry. There's going to be moments where we're dishonored. There will be moments where we're slandered by people and we're praised by people. Paul knew that his status was not in if his name was honored or dishonored. His worth was not in the rise and fall of what people thought about him or the response of his congregation, but it was only in Christ. He, he would have faced both of these. He would have faced honor, probably amongst the churches, but dishonor amongst the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul would have faced slander by all the Jews, slander even by his own church that he was involved in in Corinth. And he also would have been praised. And Paul didn't let how good or bad his ministry went to make him be discouraged or his emotions to rise and fall. He was secure in his status in Christ. You know, I think there are times where we're going to be tempted to despair when things go bad in our ministries. That's where I was when I was in my small church of 12. People are going to criticize us for our preaching. They're, They're going to say we preach too long, too short. We're too funny, too boring, too intense too relaxed, too simple, too complex. There's always going to be criticism for us. People will criticize us for leadership and vision. They'll say, your your head's too in the clouds, man. I don't know where you're going. Other people will say, you're too on the ground. You have no vision. You're going nowhere. There'll be times when we'll see one kid show up and we'll think something's wrong with us. What am I doing wrong that's making these kids not come? There'll be times when students walk away from us and even from the faith, and in these moments... We must remember to place our identity not in the status of our ministries, but the status we have in Christ. Paul was able to look beyond the the present circumstances of his ministry because he was convinced that the power rested not with him but God, and so he was convinced that his status was only by Christ's work for him. You know, on the other hand, I I think another temptation is we're tempted to rejoice just because things go well. We're tempted to think that when things go well, we're doing a good job. That's when we're commendable ministers. I think a lot of us, we want effective ministries. We want to see students saved. We want to see students coming to know Christ. But the temptation is to think that that's the only time ministry is going well. That's the only thing that makes us commendable as ministers. You know, it's not always going to happen in the way we imagine it. Last year... We had a theme for our youth ministry called Redeemed. We're going through the gospel, and I remember praying so much that summer, God, I want kids to be redeemed by the grace of Christ. We were going systematically through the gospel. I thought, what what better way to see students giving their lives to Jesus? And the way I envisioned it, I, I prayed for this. I prayed and I envisioned this is what a ministry where kids are being redeemed by the gospel will look like. They're excited to come on Fridays. They're excited to open their Bibles and study it with one another. They're excited to pray, to worship. They're singing loud. They're sharing the gospel with their, their friends and their neighbors. They're excited to come on Sunday, worship with their parents, worship with our families. I, I actually envisioned this perfect ministry. I wanted a glimpse of heaven now in my ministry. But you know what actually happened? That year, I started off by being plummeted into a seven-month spiritual depression. God was completely absent from me. I felt it. I felt that he had removed himself. Uh, there, he was nowhere to be found. Right when I came out of that, 
Students started coming forth and sharing with us how homes were being broken, parents were fighting, having affairs, families being torn apart. Other students were falling into relationships with non-Christians, the cardinal sin in youth ministry. They, they were primarily walking away from the faith. It, it, I took it personally. I felt like I was doing something wrong. These were some of my closest students in ministry that were telling me I don't believe anymore and walking away from the faith. And I remember thinking, God, I prayed that people would be redeemed by the gospel. What is going on? What's happening? Then I remembered something. I felt like the Spirit was encouraging me and reminding me and saying, Clark, you know, if people are really going to be redeemed in the gospel, sin has to come out. If people really want the power, the power of God to be worked in them, sin must be exposed, brokenness revealed. You're not going to have the perfect ministry the way you thought it up to be because I have a better plan. Now, I quickly came to realize that if I really wanted students to grow in the gospel, it was going to be hard. It was going to take suffering. It was going to take God working character in me and relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And it was going to take God tearing down my idols and reminding me my status is not in the worth of my ministry, but my worth in Christ. What's the result of all this? The result of all this is that the commendable servant, he can open his heart wide and do ministry in the most authentic and genuine way. Our, our kids are always saying that. We want authenticity. We want to be genuine. We, we want to see you be genuine. You know, there was no one more genuine or authentic than Paul. If you look at the way he closes this statement here in verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as the children, widen your hearts also. What could cause Paul to be so vulnerable before a church, open his heart so wide, even at the cost of being hurt? And he was hurt by them. He was hurt tremendously. This was a reconciliation letter to them. The only thing that could cause Paul, that minister, to be so vulnerable, so wide to his people he was seeking to reconcile to God was the gospel of Christ. It was knowing these things. It was knowing it's not about his worth and his guilt, skiffs and, uh, skills and gifts and abilities, but in his suffering, in the power of God, in the Holy Spirit, in the fruit of the Spirit of his life, and in his status in Christ, not in the world. That's what will lead us to approach our students with the gospel, with vulnerability, with weakness, with opening our hearts wide and genuinely going before them with the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we as ministers of this gospel here in California, in Alabama, in Tennessee, across the entire United States, Father, would we find our greatest worth, not in our ministries, not in our abilities, but simply in Christ and his work for us. God, make us secure in that. Make us secure in Christ, that we trust that the battle is won, that, Father, you will redeem hearts according to your plan, not ours. And, Father, just as you have secured us by the love of your Son, you can and will secure 
your elect from amongst our students in the years to come. Send us out, God, with great encouragement, great hope, and ultimately great joy in knowing who we are, not because of our ministries, but because of our worth in Christ. We thank your son's name. Amen. To learn more about gospel-centered youth ministry, please visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Music has been provided by High Street Hymns. You can access their music at www.highstreethymns.com. Alleluia, alleluia.